I need some clarity. clarity. Peace, love, and prosperity. Clarity. With the fame, cause popularity. Hello and welcome to the Perpetual Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Bill. Thank you for checking in. Episode number 10, a random bag of thoughts, reflections, and opinions. Before we get started, please remember to rate, share, subscribe, and I will thank you eternally. So I know it's been a minute. Um, It was an unintentional gap in time. I've been working on a couple ideas that I've not been able to fully get. A lot of that is because there's been a lot of work on the business behind the scene that has really dominated my time. And, you know, I'd like to get to a place where I'm relaxed enough, where content generation is me sitting in a nice air-conditioned office and just spitting out, you know, awesome content because I can erase and re-record and do all the things that I think a lot of people do. Not all of this is off the cuff or, you know, one take only. Um... So it's been a minute, and I apologize to all of, or not all, of the very few listeners that I have. So today's episode, again, is a random bag of thoughts, reflections, and opinions, since I don't have any concrete stuff yet. I've really just thrown out a couple ideas uh, here. Uh, we'll call it a mixed bag of topics that I will discuss. Um, and in each of those topics, there's three of them. Uh, there's a larger podcast that can come about them. And I think what I hope is that I get some responses from this, maybe some thoughts. You know, you guys really haven't tried to interact with me yet if you're listening. I'd really like that because then it it could kind of help me create content if you want me to expand upon things. And I think all three of these topics uh, you're going to want me to expand upon. Now, um, why do I say thoughts, reflections, and opinions? Because um, it's all of the above. Uh, um, I reflect back on my past some. Uh, you know, it kind of uh, lends credence to a couple of these topics. Um, thoughts from the perspective of somebody who was, you know, in the middle of the research and whatnot, you know, as I was watching and, and, and you know, what, what kind of tipped me off to a few of these things. And then opinions. I'm just going to give you some of my thoughts. Um, Again, opinions are just that, opinions. You can disagree with me. You can agree with me. I hope if you do either, we can have a conversation. That's it. Um, So that's really all it is. This is kind of a fun little uh, uh, bag of uh, thoughts and reflections and opinions, and I hope you guys enjoy it. So I won't bore you very much longer uh, with the intro, and I'll just let you guys get after it. So I figure this is a a really good uh, space to bring up the idea of medical marijuana use. There, I said it. Little or probably not little to known fact is that I am a uh, medical marijuana card carrier in the state of Florida. I, I have it because I have been diagnosed as ADHD and have general anxiety. I was diagnosed at Florida State University while I was still in grad school. Um, I was struggling mightily in my grad school years. I had no idea why. Um, in the end, it's really, you know, butting up of a bunch of, you know, bad thoughts and bad health and just not, and, and being overwhelmed by the task of finishing a PhD. It all just kind of fell on top of me at one time. So I was basically clinically depressed, which began uh, the, the search for this, or I guess the movement into looking for what was wrong with me. And what came out of it is that I am probably a moderate case of ADHD, um, and I do have general anxiety disorder uh, that manifests itself sometimes in moody mis- moodiness at the time. So anyway, the meds that they put me on were Adderall, 
and um, Abilify. Those are the two meds that I was on. And at one point I was on like 45 milligrams of Adderall a day, which is, it seems kind of criminal. I, I remember not liking it. I remember because, I mean, it worked. So you become somewhat dependent on it, especially when you've gone a very long time with little success and here you are on these meds and now you are you know, having success. So it took me a very long time to um, work myself up to the courage to get off of the meds. But yeah, I was on those two meds for approximately about three or four years. So marijuana and the medical marijuana, and, and I don't want people, to, I'm not going into like full legalized, you know, recreational mode here, because I do certainly believe that there needs to be a go-between with people um, if marijuana is made available to the general public. There's a lot of people that have been frightened of it for years, and to just throw it at them, you know, and, everybody's had a bad trip on marijuana. So I don't really want an individual who's trying to find relief from this stuff to get a bad trip really quickly just because they're, they're not ready for it. So I, I think, I think the idea of it being a, a medically moderated thing is not a bad thing. And, and, and I, and I'm also like, whatever I, I partake. That's how I fell into marijuana in the first place. It wasn't, it wasn't like I was thinking, you know, benevolently when I was doing it in college, I was, you know, having fun with my buddies and watching movies and laughing. So I say all that because those meds, I, I still was using marijuana when I was on those meds. It, it was marijuana that kind of got me to the point where I, you know, got myself off the tarp, I think enough. Um, I don't want to say that it saved my life, but it certainly helped me out a lot. Um, and so that's why I wanted to talk about it briefly. Um, I just wanted to talk about the crash in my life, um, you know, some of the, some of the times uh, before that and what's kind of led me to this realization that, you know, medical marijuana is good for me. It works for me. Um, it helps me out. It, it, it helps me through. Um, it helps me with my ADHD, actually, which is kind of fascinating. And again, I want to I flesh this topic out a little bit more over time, but I don't think it's the time and place to go into the research and all of that. I just want to give you guys a brief story because I think this is kind of fun. So, you know, going into, I would say my third year of college at Florida State, I was pretty close to failing out. Um, I think I had a 1.6 GPA going into the spring semester of my junior year. Um, I went into my sophomore year weighing about 190 pounds. I, I, I was pretty smoking hot. I didn't realize it, but I guess I was, I looked pretty good back then. Um, and then, you know, if, if your behaviors and your issues that are, are up in your dome aren't gone, it doesn't matter what you look like or what you feel like. Uh, eventually those, you know, the, it comes home to roost. And that's sort of what happened to me from that point until 1998. And I ended up packing on some pounds and I was, I mean, I think I was like, I think I ended up getting to close to, uh, 260. So my heaviest has been 260. I've been there twice in my life. This was the first time. You know, I was a problem drinker at the time. Um, alcohol and me, I have a really weird relationship with it. I can now control it in some cases or most cases, but I still have to check myself from time to time because it's a slippery slope. Um, you know, you couple that with a bad diet full of, you know, carbs and all of that. It just, I, my brain was a mess. And so here I was kind of collapsing again around 1998. And, you know, going into the next year, I, I actually pulled myself off the tarp. I, I made Dean's List that semester. And that's ironically when I found my way into HUN 1201, the science of nutrition. Um, I'd kind of found a place in my life where I was, I was happy. I think I had, I had found a direction. And so it, it really started sort of organically and slowly. But I would say by the time I, by time 99 comes around, I'm pretty certain I've lost almost all of that weight. And I'm back down to like 190 
and I'm kicking ass in school and I'm feeling good and everything's moving in the right direction. One of the things that had changed in my life at that time was I had stopped drinking almost altogether. I very rarely drank, and a lot of my friends were annoyed with me because they always wanted to go out and party and I just didn't want to drink. I, I would sit there with like a cup of water and look like an idiot. But I certainly did smoke a lot of the weed at that time. And one of the things I noticed was that I slept better. I didn't, I didn't have lack of sleep. My moods were a little bit more controlled. You know, I felt like I could, it, it, it was, you know, it was pretty innocuous and harmless. Uh, I would work, I, at that time I was working at a restaurant in a kitchen and I would come home and my buddies, we would roll one up, fire it up, watch some, you know, fun, fun movie. There was a, there was a rotation that we had. We would laugh and just have a great time. I would go to sleep and I would go to sleep with a smile on my face. And that wasn't always the case when I was, you know, drinking. So fast forward. I, 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 you know, somewhere between the end of undergrad and, you know, when I get to grad school, a lot of things, you know, there's a lot more story to this, but I had stopped. Um, and I think maybe because I had a bad trip one night and I just wasn't going to, I just felt like, no, oh, this is awful. And I went into this hole, didn't stop drinking though. So that was kind of a thing. And, you know, we, I moved back up to Tallahassee and I began grad school and, you know, the problem drinking really started as my stress level uh, began to increase the problem drinking and the problem eating began to drink the gorging and all that stuff I would do it all I, I was a binger I would binge very heavily uh, when nobody was looking uh, shame eating as some friends of mine like to call it um, so so yeah so I here I am and again I reached the pinnacle of the crash like I just nosedive into a cliff this is before I've been diagnosed as ADHD this is before I went on all of that journey I just knew that whatever I was doing was wrong um, I was, I had nothing going for me. I was, I failed out of, of, out of my grad program at that time. I had to leave because I just, nothing was happening. Um, and really all I had was a job at a, at a training facility. So I remember, um, when I realized I'd reached the bottom and I kind of, I think I, I think I just realized like what, you know, I got to change some things and I, I was doing a little traveling to see some friends around the state of Florida. I ended up with some friends on the West coast of Florida and one I know, you know, likes to, uh, likes to, to smoke. And I thought, you know what? I remember that time in college. I, you, something's got to change here. We got to do some different things. And I did that wave of relaxation, whatever it is, better thoughts, better decisions. Um, and people think I'm crazy because, you know, the munchies is a real thing. People say, well, don't you eat too much if you're doing it? And I'm like, actually, I eat better. I eat healthier when I'm on it. But it was just like I knew right there. I was like, maybe maybe I am onto something. So I kind of hit it for years, and I did it without people knowing um, for a very long time. And I was I was kind of ashamed of it. I'm not anymore. And so it was kind of fun. Like, I, 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 I stopped drinking a lot again. Um, I now have control of that. I, I don't drink a lot of liquor anymore for that reason because that's the stuff I tend to lose the most control of. But I can drink some craft beers. I have a, a, a pretty good uh, ability to keep that under wraps. So yeah, so that, that's kind of how I got to that point. And, and it's, it's crazy. When I took myself off of the meds in uh, 16, it, it, it's basically me periodically using during out that time uh, that kept me, I think, even remotely functioning to, to get myself to this point, so to say, because I, you know, that wasn't, that transition from being a grad student and working for somebody for years and going out on my own was a pretty chaotic one in the beginning, but 
I don't want to, like I said, I, I stopped it for a year, actually. Uh, the first full year I was in business, I think 2017 or 2018, I think I stopped. And then I kind of picked it back up again here over the last couple of years. And, and now I'm, you know, registered medical. Um, I, I try to balance it out. I know that you can't be kid in a candy store with that stuff. That's dangerous, um, especially if you don't want to wreck your lungs. But also, again, some of these, some of these, and, and I've gotten a chance to really experiment with the different styles and the different um, strains. And I can tell you that um, having a good professional in your background guiding you is very important if you're going to do this. But for me, it's worked out pretty well. Again, I want to I want to draw I want to draw this out a little bit more, um, maybe in another podcast. So I hope this was interesting and feel free to reach out and ask me any questions. I mean, I don't like I said, I'm not ashamed of this. I'd like to be someone who educates people on this and is not afraid of the topic because it's real and it's happening in this country um, and I and in this world. And and you can look at the data and you can see how use of this it can be very beneficial for people. So one of the interesting facts about me is that I actually taught a beginning nutrition class at Tallahassee Community College for a decade. Um, HUN 1201, the science of nutrition, primarily it is a prerequisite for nursing students, but obviously a lot of other uh, disciplines kind of get in there. That's kind of how I got into the subject that I got into studying was because I was actually a nursing student at the time. I sat in on this class and realized where I belonged. In fact, it, so it's really cool when you think full circle that I've come back and actually taught the class. And I taught it at FSU too during a TA program and then eventually settled in at a, at a position at uh, Tallahassee Community College. And, you know, over the years, it was fun to kind of see, and, and, and obviously I haven't been teaching it for about three years now, but to go back and reflect on the things that have changed um, in the time that I was teaching that in food nutrition. I remember the original class was following a book and when you were a TA you really didn't have any latitude of what you could and couldn't teach. They was fixed and we had to sit down as a group and figure this out and it was more along the lines of the classic nutritional story, you know, the USDA principles and all of those things and it would go through each of the sections. The section that I always remembered being the most difficult was the first one which was the food section and I thought the book did a terrible job of that. I think the book actually, I, I have so many copies of this book, I don't use it anymore. I don't, I, I, it doesn't even, it's not even relevant, I think, anymore with the way that I think about nutrition. I'm sure there's some things in there that are still relevant, but for the most part, nah. So when I was at TCC, I, I kind of went away from a book and I began really trying to pull from the research because, you know, I was kind of coming out of that at that time. You know, when I was in grad school, that's all we did was look at research. And I found that, you know, that's the way that information is really actually gleaned. It's some of it is still speculation. You have to you have to play that game a little bit. You have to be willing to understand that nothing is concrete and that you may be wrong. Um, and I did that a lot, especially when I taught this class in the beginning. I, I Some of those students that I taught back then got such a disservice. I was not the same teacher that I was later in the process. And even I think now if I went back and taught that class. So, you know, the, the, first, the first section was always the most difficult because it just, I don't know, how do you define food? Like, how do, you, how do you begin to talk about food? And I found it very difficult because food is so many things. It's, it's more than just this life-sustaining element that we have to put into our body. You know, there's, there's more to that story, particularly as it relates to, you know, people getting together, associations, relations, families, 
festivals, all the things that, you know, we love as kids and we love as adults and we love sharing with people. So food, food has a greater story than just whether or not it contains the appropriate amount of, of nutrients for us to continue living. And so I struggled with it at first and I got better at it as I went because I started to rethink uh, my view of food. I guess, I guess one of my failings in the beginning of you know, being a nutritionist and, and working in the industry was that I was so hell-bent on following the protocol that was laid out before me. I never stopped to question the many discrepancies that would pop up to me, you know, and, and I think I just wasn't as good of a critical thinker at the time, but you would, you would hear things that didn't make sense or explanations that, you know, looking back on them now seem very fabricated and very awful. And there's a bunch of them in there that were in that book as well. Um, so, you know, I, I never thought to question those things. I thought, you know, follow protocol. And in some cases with clients, I would have that I would have success and, and I would always kind of pass off the other ones as, you know, people, people not doing it correctly or something like that. I didn't think it was me, but you know, as I got on, I, I kind of learned that wasn't the case. So, you know, one of the things that made talking this topic more interesting is, as I got later into my teaching career was that the information had rapidly changed in a good way. And we had more information and more thoughts out there that could allow you to look at some of those discrepancies and try to figure out where it is, where the things didn't fit, where it didn't fit. And, you know, there were a number of these, but I think the one that interests me the most and the one that has sort of shaped uh, the way that I look at food now is the whole concept of the microbiome. And for those that are not familiar with what that is, that are the mi those are the microorganisms that are living in your gut. And yes, there are a lot of them in there. And I, I've seen estimates before that said it was, you know, three times the amount of your body cells. So the closest estimation that I think that I've ever seen that seems reasonable for the amount of cells in the human body is something close to 37 trillion cells in your human body that makes up the most average. And obviously that's give or take depending on, you know, varying degrees of differences in, in person and genetics. But, um, you know, it was once thought that it was three times when, when in reality it's probably something close to the same amount. These things are a lot smaller, so obviously they take up less space, but they inhabit your gut and they have a very, very, very prominent role in your health, more so than you might believe. And so it led me to this whole idea of that food that contains zero life gives zero life. And, you know, this is really new thought for me. It's not, I was teaching it that way, but I never thought to make a really concrete term for it. Food that has zero life gives zero life and i think this gets into that broader topic of process versus whole food why is it that we can match nutrient up you know dollar for dollar between processed and whole food and one gives us life and the other takes it um you know and, and then that goes along for some of the supplementation stuff i get in arguments with people all the time they want to ask me what's the best supplements to take and i'm just like none just go eat food go eat real food and that's another topic for another day. I won't get into that. That seems like a good one to get involved with another individual uh, that's a nerd like me that might want to talk about supplements and, and rail on them a little bit. But anyway, so, so that's really, I think, where I, I, I'm taking this section is that when, when you look at processed food 
and you look at Whole Food, what is really the difference? Because if you look at the numbers, they all look the same. My guess is that food that has no life left in it, if you've extracted out what you deem to be the life-giving principle, which in oftentimes are carbs, fats, proteins, vitamins, minerals, these things are synthetically made in laboratories and put into our food now. But the one thing that processed food cannot replicate is the life that is found on whole foods. And, and not to say that you don't eliminate a good portion of that life when you cook it because you're obviously taking down all the microorganisms that are on a food when you cook it. But raw food has a tremendous amount of life in it. In fact, you're eating a living organism when you're eating a piece of fruit. So I think this is a good train of thought and I think this is good for this style of podcast that I'm trying to do since it's pretty random. Think about that topic. Food that has zero life gives zero life. And the next time you're making a decision between a processed and a whole food, you know, kind of kind of keep bring that into focus because the more whole food you eat, the more health you're going to have. And obviously we could talk about all the macronutrients and all that stuff that goes along with it. But I think ultimately at its base is the more whole food you have in your diet, the less processed food you have in your diet, the better off you're going to be. So about two months ago or so, I suffered uh, a mild injury. It was a, a, su a rib subluxation uh, that caused a pretty good amount of spasming in my lower back. Even though my lower back was fine, it was, it was like basically just a rib that had kind of moved a little bit and was causing some prominent musculature down there to spasm. And though I could, you know, get it worked out with a little bit of mobility techniques. It wasn't until my Cairo had put it back to place that I had began to heal. So, you know, I didn't want to do a lot of load and I still like to work out. And uh, one of the ideas that popped into my head is a concept called blood flow restriction training. Now, some people are probably furrowing their brow right now and some of you are nodding your head in approval because this is a really interesting and cool concept in exercise physiology that has a multitude of applications. And when I say that, I mean, it's, it's a really, really cool concept. Um, it's derived from research that was done in Japan around 1966 called Katsu. That's the technique. And again, I'm not going to try to go into whatever the acronym is, but it's K-A-A-T-S-U if you're looking for the spelling of Katsu. Okay. Um, you know, it was a lot more detailed research at the time because I believe they were using pneumatic cuffs, you know, like you do to get your blood pressure taken so that they could dial in exactly what amount of pressure works. And, you know, a lot of great results um, that came out of some of those uh, initial papers. I haven't reviewed them in a long time. But I do remember uh, a lot of these guys um, in at FSU when I was in grad school, um, some of the nerd slash lifting bros that I encountered while I was at FSU and there was a lot of really good thought down there and a few of them were intrigued by this idea uh, from two standpoints because again there was a lot of thoughts down there some people were looking at it as a therapeutic um, you know modality whereas some of the individuals that were more interested in hypertrophy which is growth of muscle found it as a, a you know way to train um, in an appropriate manner that prevents um, you know, further damage to joints, because especially if you're trying to grow, you've got to lift a lot of load. And one of the cool features of this is that you can get similar responses in muscle growth without the same level of load. So unloading a few times a week is very beneficial uh, to prevent joint injuries and overwear and things like that. 
So blood flow restriction has been around for a while, and I remember a lot of those talks back then, and because of my injury, I kind of refound it because I didn't want to stop working out, and I wasn't sure what was out there anymore. So and I had these wraps that were just laying around. They weren't specifically for blood flow restriction, but I tried them out. I thought I had a nice experience with it, and as I did a little research, I found that there were plenty of contraptions out there. I think actually my Cairo tipped me off by sending me a link. Um, there are plenty of devices out there that allow you to do blood flow restriction training. And if you want to talk about a game changing concept, this is one of them. I'm not going to go into great detail about what it is and how it works, because I think this is something that I would rather bring in a really, really qualified individual to talk about this. Uh, a buddy of mine who was a researcher at Florida state at the time who is now, you know, running game, doing, doing research, doing good stuff. And when I had initially posted something on social media about this, he had reached out to me and let me know that he had done some research and that he was pretty excited about the, the idea of what it is and what it can be doing. And, and, and to see that, you know, I think in a lot of ways, so, you know, coming back out into the practitioner realm, you know, those guys are doing all the research. They're giving us all the data that allows us to make decisions on how to, change the effectiveness of our programs and this is to me i think a really interesting game changer and i think the scientific community is excited that practitioners like me are starting to try to use this in more of a general fitness sense and not in more of the you know richer more you know higher end fitness type deals like professional sports and and, and whatnot so this this is always one of the more interesting things that used to make my brow furrow when I was listening to research on muscle growth. And, and I got into that for a little while because one of the projects that I was working on was actually the other end of it was muscle injury, muscle degeneration. You know, I was working on a diagnostic approach to catching uh, degeneration or injury in the muscle that was more specific than the the available uh, instruments um, at the current being. And so, you know, I got interested in learning about muscle and how it works and what we're looking at, all these proteins that are involved in it. And that's how I somewhat ventured into a lot of these conversations because I was taking classes with these guys and we were, you know, discussing thoughts and so on and so forth. And one of the interesting um, terms or phrases that were used a lot was metabolic byproducts metabolic byproducts. So, you know, muscle growth is, is a pretty expansive topic. Like how does a muscle be triggered to grow? Obviously we know that lifting weights and mechanical stress causes that. Well, one of the, the debates was always how much damage is required to create growth. And, and because at the time, I think they were focusing or hyper-focusing on uh, stem cells called satellite cells in the muscle. And so I think what gets lost in that regard was they could go through all these factors. And I did some stem cell study stuff. I did some satellite cell. It's really interesting. It's alphabet soup. Um, you know, I, I, I fancy myself a decent cellular biologist, but maybe not on that level in terms of like all the little triggers and signals and all the things that make the cell either become active or dormant because some of those cells do become dormant again after they're activated. So without boring you even more with some of that, we'll, we'll just kind of, you know, slide back to where we were. So, you know, there were all these different factors that could trigger the appropriate response. But the one thing that always seemed to get lost in the translation was, you know, you could give hormone, you could look at all these other things and there was just very little correlation 
between that and actual like results in the laboratory, specifically when you're talking about, you know, elite athletes. And a lot of this type of research gets done on elite athletes because if you get any change in them, you're getting real, real data. You're getting something significant. But what they would explain that off to, what is the missing factor? What is the missing ingredient when all these things are in place that cause growth? And they would always chalk it up to metabolic byproducts. Okay. And so that, that was what I think drew me to this thing because that's essentially what you're doing there. And there were a couple, um, you know, proteins and things that I had studied looking, looking from the perspective of the regeneration process. And you notice a couple names pop up. Some of them have sort of bad raps. Some of them you've probably never heard of before. One of those is lactic acid. So anyway, that's what I think of when they're saying metabolic metabolic uh, byproducts. The other one is involved in hypoxia, which is a term that describes lack of oxygen at the tissue level, okay? And not at the organism level, that's something completely, that's apoxia, I think. But hypoxia is just in a, in, a, in a regional. So say only New York is without oxygen, but Florida and everything else surrounding is fine, okay? So, so that started to make sense. And, and, and I, think, I think you can look at, there's probably uh, many more of these factors in there that are involved, but, but but when I thought about it with juxtaposed with those two particular ones, I thought, yeah, I guess that makes sense. That if you were to reduce the blood flow, you're going to reduce the oxygen, um, also delay carbon dioxide, which is part of the process as well. And what that does is it it causes the muscle to go into a stress mode, a higher degree of stress, at a lower weight. Because obviously, if you if you begin you know restricting blood flow, you're not going to be as strong as you were without the cuffs on. And um, early returns, that's exactly what happens. But but over time, those metabolic factors accumulate, and that would trigger the type of growth in the muscle that they saw with this concept. So. Again, really interesting. I'd love to talk in more detail about this, but I think I need to bring in someone who's a little bit more of an expert to do that. So if you're interested in this and you're interested in learning about this, I'm sure there are some you know, counterindications involved. I think if you have severe vascular issue, uh, potential for thrombuses, which are clots in your lower leg, I think this might be something that you would consult with your physician first before trying. Um, in most cases, if you're trying to gain a little bit of muscle, get a little bit of an edge in the gym, this is a really good concept. If you're coming off of an injury and you don't want to load a joint, you know, you can put these things on your legs and do air squats if you have a knee injury and get the same effect of doing, you know, full body weights or doing squats with a barbell. You can get, you know, something along those lines. Um, you can find the cuffs on Amazon. I mean, the ones that I, I bought two pairs, they were about 30, 40 bucks a piece. I don't think they're like the higher end ones. I'm sure, you know, most fitness equipment comes in the lower grade ones and you could, you could buy up whatever you want. The higher end ones, you can actually dial in the correct pressure. So really whatever your budget is and what you're looking for, I think is the kind of decisions you're going to make on the product, but they're out there and they're variable and they're very easy to get and they do work. I've, I've, I've liked what I've seen out of the few clients that I've used them for. So this is one of those ones that I think if you have any questions, please reach out to me ASAP. I'd like to have a conversation about blood flow restriction training with you. And I look forward to seeing you on the next episode of The Perpetual Athlete. Lord, I need some. Oh, Lord, I need some. Oh, Lord, oh, Lord. Tarif, knock out, knock out, knock out. Local rapper part one, part one, part one.